Good morning, everybody. This past week, the uh, British magazine, The Economist, uh, ran this cover, Free Speech Under Attack. The, the cover and the stories about it raised eyebrows and elicited a ton of comments. Here's a, a little taste of the lead editorial. Look at this, this lead editorial, Economist, this week. Without the contest of ideas, the world is timid and ignorant. Banning words or arguments which one group finds offensive does not lead to social harmony. On the contrary, it gives everyone an incentive to take offense. And since offense is subjective, the power to retaliate or police is both vast and arbitrary." Close quote. Oh, I am so sorry. I forgot to give a microaggression warning before I read that. I, um, sorry, I couldn't resist. Seriously, that is spot on, is it not? It, it seems that for the biblical value of open dialogue to return to Western societies, people need to learn. We, we need to learn from a mother at our church. Let me tell you about this mom. This certain mom tells me that when she lays down the facts, her kids sometimes whine. Can you believe that? In other words, they resemble all of us when we hear truth that we don't like. In response, this mother in our church purchased the following t-shirt, which she tells me she is going to wear all summer. And it says, suck it up, buttercup. Now that's funny. But of course, this is a serious issue. Things can get downright dangerous for people who... who share unpopular realities. Uh, recently, another family from our church experienced the danger of speaking truth. Here's the story. Their son was down the street playing with some other kids. Among the kids, the topic of transgendered commands from on high in Washington came up, something each child likely heard discussed around their dining room table. Kindly, and that is the key, even gently, this student from the Christian family shared with the other kids that God made people male and female. He said anything else is an aberration to be compassionately dealt with. Uh, no doubt, quoting his parents, he said this, celebrating wrong doesn't make it right, close quote. Now, you know that is not the accepted zeitgeist, and, and that earned him some derision from the other kids on the playground. Still, they all kind of talked for a while, and then they played together. They played all the way up until supper time. In, in the words of the playgrounds I grew up on, we would have said, no blood, no foul, right? Until the next morning. When the family got up and this was waiting for them on their house when they awoke. Their home had been vandalized, spray painted with seriously nasty comments, many of which are far too ugly for me to share in this gathering. Their house, their fence, their driveway, their sidewalk. Folks, this is not in Putin's Russia. This is not in G's China. This is not even in the University of California system. This is in a lovely neighborhood in Plano, Texas. And it reveals a reality that is found in all times and all places, a reality that we far too often forget. Speakers of God's truth often face ugly opposition. Just consider what Moses endured. Open your Bible, if you would, to the second book of your Bible, Exodus. Uh, go to chapter 9. Let's read about the situation that led to plague number 7, the seventh plague by which God brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Pick it up in chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Otherwise, I'm going to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I've let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known in all the earth. You're still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. 
every person animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take the Lord's word seriously, can we just interrupt for a second? Can you imagine after the six plagues have already gone through, there were people who didn't take God's word seriously? Thank goodness we're not like that. Sorry. Okay, back to the text. Uh, those who did not take the Lord's word seriously uh, left their servants and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt. On man and beast, every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the earth. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe, nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both man and beast. The hail beat down every plant in the field, shattered every tree in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I've sinned this time. This time. Not, not before. I've sinned this time, he said to them. Yahweh is the righteous one. I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to Yahweh. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. Moses said to him, when I've left the city... I will extend my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth belongs to Yahweh. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still do not fear Yahweh our God. The flax and barley were destroyed because the barley was ripe and the flax was budding. But the wheat and spelt were not destroyed since they are later crops. Moses went out from Pharaoh in the city and extended his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased. Rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased... He sinned again and hardened his heart, he, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. Now, the context is incredibly important here, folks. This is why the first space in your notes, um, there in your bulletin, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. Notes there. On the left-hand side, you'll see the first space deals with context. You miss the historical and theological context of this passage. You are very likely to misread the entire point. It's like, it's like this photo. Uh, take a look. A couple of years ago, this photo went viral on Twitter. Many, many, many millions of shares. It's decrying the horror of animal testing. But in reality, no animal abuse is going on here. This is an actual older photo of a bunch of veterinarians who are volunteering their time to spay and neuter homeless animals so they can be adopted instead of euthanized. The context changes everything. So before you go tweeting about Moses this week, make sure you know the context, right? Okay. The context for this plague has a number of important layers. First, these last four plagues are slightly different in fashion from the six we studied last time. Look at verses 15 and 16. Here God reveals a little peek at his ultimate and intricate purposes. We learn something we hadn't learned so far, that God's doing all this for a reason. And it is his restraint that is most fascinating in these plagues. Not his displays of power, his restraint. Now, I know, in that snooty British accent that you like to use in your head, you're saying to me right now, well, pastor, it's elementary. I mean, it's only logical that God has a purpose behind all his actions. Right? <laughs> right. Very good. You're right, of course. But you know... It doesn't seem elementary when you're the one in the fight. When you're Moses, speaking truth to the most powerful leader of the most powerful culture on earth, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that God has an intricate and perfect plan. When you're the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt, or, or the person who's battling cancer, or the child without a daddy, or the unemployed provider, or the family whose home was vandalized, God's plan can seem inscrutable. And quite frankly... That's the point. 
Look at Peter N's excellent summary. I like this so much I put it in your notes. Dr. N says, it is important to understand that the plagues are not a process whereby God wore Pharaoh down so that he would eventually relent. God prolongs the process to make a point, namely, that he is not only the God of the Hebrew slaves, but also over Egypt and the other nations as well. Pharaoh was his tool to make that known. Those times of restraint, when Yahweh allows pains and delays to seemingly stymie his people, those seasons have a purpose. They are designed to make humans everywhere engage with a God who is bigger, broader, who, who is more powerful than we ever dreamed. It's, it's another facet of the lesson that we learned from Jeremiah and Habakkuk and David. When life hurts, what do we do? When life hurts, we wrestle with God, and that is just what he wants. Because when we wrestle with him, we find him to be more. We see, we see little glimpses of his restraint, and it changes everything. It especially changes everything inside our souls. Here, read with me from Habakkuk's response. Habakkuk the prophet gets a little glimpse of God's sovereignty, of his amazing restraint. And when Habakkuk sees that restraint, th this is his response. You, you read the underlined text with me. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, situation has not changed. Circumstances have not changed. Look what he says. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Thank you. The biblical concept is to show a world that he loves that God is more. Now, seeing that, we can then trample the idolatry of our high places. All God's people said? Amen. Speaking of idolatry, this hail was a direct affront to the Egyptian god Set. Uh, Set controlled storms. When he was properly worshipped, no big storms were supposed to bother Egypt. We know Set was very popular during this era because of all the temples to Set during this time. We know he was very popular, and we can safely assume his sacrifices were up to date. However, the poor idol set obviously was not up to the task of controlling the storm that blasted Egypt's barley and flax. It's also a slam on the Egyptian sky goddess Nut. By the way, can I, can I just laugh with you for a minute? I just, I have to read you something. Uh, an Egyptologist whom I really respect, um, he wrote this, and I just, let me just quote this. Nut is either depicted as a beautiful woman arching over the earth dressed in nothing but stars or as a cow. I'm just going to leave that there. That's hilarious. All right, now, now because, because we don't live in a state polytheistic cult, it's rather hard for us to grasp what a big blow this hailstorm is to Nut's prestige. So, so picture something people worship today, like soccer, okay? People, people around the world worship soccer. Imagine a little kid, I know, baseball, you understand. I, anyway, um, sorry. Uh, imagine a little, sorry. Uh, imagine a little kid going up to Lionel Messi and, and stealing the, Messi's trying hard, he's doing his best. The kid steals the ball from Messi, dribbles around him, makes fun of him, and scores a goal. Okay, that, that was similar to what the Egyptians felt when Yahweh humiliated Set and Nut. Final contextual point. Verse 31 tells us this plague occurred in January. Right? We, we, we know it had to be then because that's when Nile barley is ripe and that's when the flax is blossoming. And that takes us to the result. The result is widespread agricultural devastation just as big storms accomplish today. However, the impact is much larger. Look, when a tornado takes out a few wheat fields in Kansas, the price of your bread doesn't go up very much because America has lots of wheat fields and, and also lots of surplus storage. But when the barley of Egypt is all destroyed, that means, wait for it, 
That means no beer, all right? No beer. Egyptian barley wasn't just used for what we use it for, for animal fodder and soups and some human bread consumption. No, Egyptian beer was the fermenting ingredient in that nasty concoction that so many of you adore, beer, right? Maybe, maybe no beer is why Pharaoh has another result. He finally speaks of sin. Uh, look, looking at it, verse 27. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I've sinned this time. He said to them, Yahweh is the righteous one. I and my people are the guilty ones. Wow, that's a really big change. An Egyptian leader is thinking in terms of sin before Yahweh. This is one of the very important things that must happen for people to be in a position to engage with the God of grace. The human must recognize that he is sinful and God is not. And this is true of every single person. You who are not yet Christians, listen, you must start here with an honest evaluation of truth that exposes God's holiness and your imperfection. There is no salvation without belief in God's perfect provision alone. We cannot be justified by our own sin-tainted works. And we who are already Christians cannot grow in sanctification unless we regularly take note of how we miss the mark. And we do. We see another aspect of this in the Egyptian court. Look at verse 20. The, the smart people brought their animals in because they feared God's word, right? <laughs> Yahweh is the word we translate fear. It's a really old word. It has similar cousins in a number of very ancient languages. In fact, Yahweh is one of the oldest words in all of human history. It means to be afraid. Not, not so much terror as in a trembling awe, okay? Yahweh is first used in the book of Exodus when Moses is kneeling before God at the, at the burning bush. Now these Egyptians are understanding the power of God's word, trembling awe before God's word. But even though God's purpose is being achieved, most of Egypt still rejects a relationship with Yahweh, the one true covenant God. Pharaoh even hardens his heart as God predicted and purposed. I really think Jill Briscoe captures Pharaoh and his officials and all of us perfectly with her quote on the right side of your notes. Look to the right side of your notes. This is from Jill's book, uh, Here Am I, Send Aaron. Maybe my favorite title of a book ever. <laughs> Jill says, to these people, the plagues that God allowed to touch their lives brought a reaction of defiance. Actually, Pharaoh acted like so many of us do. While the plague was plaguing him, he softened. But when respite came, he hardened his heart. Close quote. It's hard to speak truth to people like that. People who are so like us. So the Lord sends plague number eight. Go to chapter 10, plague number eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them and so that you may tell your son and your grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and perform miraculous signs among them and you will know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and told him, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder left to you that escaped the hail. They will eat every tree you have growing in the fields. They will fill your houses, all your officials' houses, the houses of all the Egyptians, something your fathers and ancestors never saw since the time they occupied the land until today. Then he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh's officials asked him, How long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship Yahweh their God. Don't you realize yet Egypt is devastated? So Moses and Aaron brought back, were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship Yahweh your God, Pharaoh said. But exactly who will be going? Moses replied, we will go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and daughters, our flocks and herds, because we must hold Yahweh's festival. 
He, Pharaoh, said to them, May Yahweh be with you if I ever let you and your families go. Look out, you're planning evil. Now only the men may go and worship Yahweh, for that's what you've been asking for. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. The Lord then said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, and locusts will come over it and eat every plant in the land, everything that the hail left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord sent an east wind over the land all that day and through the night. By morning the east wind had brought in the locusts. The locusts went up over the entire land of Egypt, settled on the whole territory of Egypt. Never before had there been such a large number of locusts, and there never will be again. They covered the surface of the whole land, so the land was black. And they consumed all the plants on the ground and all the fruit on the trees the hail had left. Nothing green was left in the trees or plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to Yahweh your God so that he will take this death away from me. Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. Then the Lord changed the wind to a strong west wind, and it carried off the locusts and blew them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. Context here is multifaceted. Religiously, this is a slap in the face of this goddess, Renetutet. Isn't that a fun word to say, Renetutet? You want to try it? Count of three, Renetutet. One, two, three. Renetutet. Yeah, it's just kind of fun. Um, Renetutet, the goddess of drums. No, I'm kidding. It just sounds like that. She's actually the goddess of the harvest. She's usually depicted, I don't know if you can tell, she's usually depicted as a cobra um, at harvest time. She was depicted as a woman other times, a cobra at harvest time. And here's why. Um, cobras not only are the symbol of, of Upper Egypt, but cobras also uh, have a, a fascinating trait. When there are lots of grasshoppers, they'll eat them. Mainly cobras live on reptiles and amphibians, but when there's a whole lot of grasshoppers, they will eat them, eat prodigiously of them. And so Renetutet was worshipped, particularly at harvest time, to keep the critters from running the crops. But this false goddess Renetutet is powerless against Yahweh's six-legged bringers of death. Politics is also another important part of the context. Remember, remember these new kingdom pharaohs had their power base in Upper Egypt, okay, what we would call Southern Egypt. Their traditional enemies were the Hyksos. They, they were a, a Semitic people loosely related to the Israelites who had ruled Egypt for generations before finally being ousted from Lower Egypt. Lower Egypt is the location of Goshen. That's the land that the Hyksos pharaohs promised to Israel in a treaty promised to Jacob's descendants. When they took over all of Egypt, these new kingdom pharaohs, they, they illegally violated that treaty. And, and they turned the Hebrews into slaves in Goshen. So, in verse 7, when the bureaucrats tell Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go for a three-day festival, they hedge their bet with a really pretty tricky evasion. Notice they only say to let the men go. This way, even if the guys want to take up arms against Egypt and sweep down and attack some of the, uh, some of the upper Egypt strongholds, the families can be held for ransom. When you read it, it, it seems as if they're giving in to God's reasonable demands. But this is all just political theater. And by the way, personally, I think that kind of pretense, tricky pretense, I think it's actually the most difficult kind of opposition that truth speakers face. Pharaoh picks up on this preemptive bargain. Look what he does. He even expands it with the lie that male-only worship is what Moses had been wanting all along, which is not true. And apparently this king's fearful anti-Semitism has led him to a very harsh view of the Hebrew slavery. Since in verse 10, look what he calls their worship. What does he call it? A great evil. Guys, that is unique in the ancient world. Look, even the old Babylonian code of Hammurabi allowed slaves to worship. It, every other culture had allowed slaves to worship. Hammurabi also said they could own land and, and that slavery was not to be inherited. 
Slavery was not racial and inherited. It was just a result of situations in life. What Egypt's doing to Israel here, this kind of nasty, universal, racial, inherited slavery, this is singular for that era. It's just evil. And the result was devastating. A few years ago, I could have illustrated this locust plague with all the dead plants on our campus. Uh, annually, some of, you, some of you remember, we were inundated with grasshoppers from all the pastures around our church here in the country. I even got letters. Every summer, I got letters from women who were afraid to come to church because of all the, all the grasshoppers. However, last year, our brilliant facilities director found a safe formula that kills the locusts and their eggs. Yay, David. Um, if you want to get a feel for just how destructive locusts or grasshoppers are in swarms, read Laura Ingle Wilder's great book on the banks of Plum Creek. How many of you have read... Laura Ingalls Wilder's Banks of Plum... Okay, the rest of you are in for such a treat. You've you got to read this book. In one part, you'll see she describes a real grasshopper cloud that nearly destroys her family. It's chilling. Once again, Pharaoh begs, and according to his grace and plan, God removes the nasty bugs. But God hardens the king's heart in preparation for plague number nine. Go to verse 21, plague number nine. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. There will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had lights where they lived. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship Yahweh. Even your families may go with you. Only your flocks and herds must stay behind. Moses responded, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to prepare for Yahweh our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship Yahweh our God. We will not know what we'll use to worship Yahweh until we get there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again for the day you see my face you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. Now, the emotion of the passage actually builds from here, but let's just stop and grasp the context, okay? Just as with the first six plagues, this third plague of the cycle is, is again, unannounced. That's been the pattern uh, all along. Two plagues announced with a chance for Egypt to respond, which they didn't, and then a surprise third one. And Yahweh is being completely reasonable here. The, the Egyptians are violating international law. They deserve no warning. And yet they're being afforded plenty of opportunity to do what is right. God's not even asking for complete freedom. He just wants a three-day worship trip that will be far enough away from the Egyptian population so the Egyptians won't be offended. The fact that Egypt refuses this shows how incredibly unreasonable they are. And this plague shows how impotent the Egyptian gods are, in particular, Atum and Ra. Atum is the god of the evening sun. Get this. He created the world. Atum, in Egyptian theology, created the world because he could capture and control his own shadow. That's how he created the world. So he was Peter Pan, okay? So Atum <laughs> created the world by capturing his own shadow. Ra is the major god of the morning and midday sun. Pharaoh, in fact, was called son of Ra. Ra knew everything about humans, all right? He was the eye in the sky long before Alan Parsons and the NSA and drones, all right? And even at night, the, the star goddesses spied for Ra. And yet suddenly, for three days, there's supernatural darkness. Atum can't control his shadow. Ra can't see. Neither can his spies. A darkness that can be felt. That sounds so creepy, doesn't it? Of course, that's a jab at Atum, who supposedly controlled his own shadow but can't control this. I think it's also a nifty way of describing total darkness. Uh, ever been in one of those cavern tours where, where you get down real deep and the guide turns out all the lights. Anybody ever been on one of those tours in a big cave? Where they do that? Okay, 
it's really dark, isn't it? I mean, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. I was on one of those once in Missouri, and it was particular. It was a very wet cavern, and it was particularly humid in there. And I, I thought of this verse because it was so humid and so dark. I thought a darkness that can be felt. That's that's what it seemed like. The result of this darkness is Pharaoh completely loses his mind. It, it, Pharaoh's final foolish bargain. Look at verse twenty-four. It's absurd. What he proposes, guys, it would be like saying to Christians, all right, you can have your Bible study, but you can't use any Bibles. Not even your phones, nothing, no Bibles. In fact, that was exactly the situation in Eastern Europe when I was a kid. My friends smuggled Bibles into East Germany because even though Bible study technically was not illegal there, Bibles were. Such is the absurd deal that Pharaoh offers in verse 22. And then the fool severs all hope for redemption. He cuts off his one hope. His one hope is a relationship with Moses, who has been amazingly compassionate. This is as foolish as modern governments that silent speech, which could actually improve their country, timid and ignorant indeed. This idiot king actually even threatens the representative of Yahweh. He threatens the representative of the God who has all of his false deities tied up in knots. Of course, such shouldn't surprise us. We know, right? We know that it can be very dangerous to speak the truth. And that's the situation whereby the passage reaches its climax when plague number 10 is introduced. We're only going to read the introduction today, but go to chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now, announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says, speaking to Pharaoh. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. And every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who's behind the millstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as it never was before or ever will be again. But against the Israelites, whether man or beast, not even a dog will snarl. Isn't that a really cool way to depict complete peace and quiet? That never happens in your neighborhood. I hear your dogs every night, about 6 o'clock. They go wild, right? But it, not, even, not even dogs going to bark. No snarling. It's amazing. Total peace for them. Not even a dog will snarl, so you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours, Moses says, will come down to me and bow down before me, saying, Leave, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And he left Pharaoh's presence in fierce anger. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. Context is fascinating. This plague is announced by an appropriately angry Moses. And by the way, don't get thrown off by the stylistic insertion of verses 1 through 3. Hey, folks, the argument flow goes straight from chapter 10, verse 29, to chapter 11, verse 4. Moses' angry declaration of deserved death comes right on the heels of Pharaoh's threat after the ninth plague. Verses 1 through 3 seem to be placed where they are for emphasis. The Hebrews love using parallelism like this for emphasis. Take a look. You've got idiotic leadership by the Pharaoh, right? That's followed by actual favor for God's people among the Egyptians. Moses is especially revered. That pattern is then inversely paralleled in chapter 11, verse 8, where Pharaoh's court bows down before Moses, and in verses 9 through 10, which show Pharaoh's hard heart. In between, in the middle, we see the idea that's being set aside for emphasis. God punishes the oppressor, and he rescues his people. So, next time you see idiotic leadership, 
especially in an arena where most of the country appreciates God's people or even agrees with God's word, relax. Just relax. Oh, you can get angry. Moses does. Yahweh does. But there's no need to sin in your anger. Rest in Yahweh. Here's what you're seeing. You're merely observing a situation where hard-hearted leaders don't fear God's word. Punishment will come on them. God's people will be vindicated. Who knows? You might even live to see the oppressor chastised. We see this pattern, guys, we see it again and again and again in world history. We see it in the prophets of the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Therefore, in such situations, when the world refuses to hear truth and God seems to be restraining, taking forever, we must recognize the pattern and trust God. All God's people said? In terms of Egyptian religion, Osiris and Isis are directly confronted here. Osiris and Isis are a really weird brother-sister combo. They're called Baal and Asherah in other countries. Uh, they supposedly brought life to the dead. Their, their nasty sexual liaison was said to magically bring rain to rivers and restore crops and even raise humans. That's, by the way, every time in your Bible you see Baal worship or Asherah worship, you need to know that it means ritual, nasty sexuality. That's what's involved in it. But there's no magic formula that can stop this plague. God is bringing judgment, and no puny Osiris or Isis can stop it. By the way, I need to address this. You, you will on occasion see uneducated nonsense that claims that Osiris is similar to Jesus. That is absurd. Utterly, if Jesus was resurrected to some zombie kind of half-life, if he were already embalmed before he were resurrected, if his body had to be stitched back together because all the bones were broken and all the skin was, was torn apart... And if his sister had to copulate with him first, even though he's dead, grotesque, to start the magic, if all that were true, then Jesus might be a little bit like Osiris. Thank God he is not. The result will be seen in detail next week. The big picture is Osiris and Isis are discredited while the Egyptian government and culture are held accountable. God meant it when he promised Abraham that God would curse those who curse the Hebrews. That's why the wholesale slaughter that the Egyptian male babies 80 years before has now come back on Egypt. No wonder the Egyptians will beg the Hebrews to go and Israel will plunder Egypt. God has finally broken the oppressor. Now, I want to brag on you folks for a minute. Studies declare that people today cannot handle more than a few verses of Scripture at a time, right? <laughs> and yet, I, I am so impressed. You have remained completely engaged through a really longish thought section. It's reason number 346 why I praise God for you guys. Now, let's look over all that we've learned. Let's apply this to ourselves, okay? For the first six plagues, we discussed idols, how our own idols are surely as nasty as the Egyptian pantheon. In fact, ours may be worse because you know what we do with our idols? We, we, we sprinkle a little warped Jesus on them to somehow make them seem acceptable, right? The same lesson that Egypt learns can be reemphasized for us with these four plagues, right? Our idolatry must be, it will be conquered by Yahweh. If we're smart, we will engage willingly in that process with him. And there's another important connection between our lives and this text. There are times to speak truth to power. Even when threatened, even when our God seems like he's all restraint and no action, there are even times to be hot with anger, just as Moses and Yahweh were. Guys, pretending otherwise only allows evil a stronger foothold in our countries and in our hearts. But listen, listen carefully. That's not to say we fight evil evilly. 
The New Testament has a lot to say about this. Quickly, let, let's look at some New Testament commands about how we speak truth. Like Moses, we must do everything we can to keep a good reputation with outsiders. What, what 1 Timothy 3 says to elders is actually the standard for all of us. Verse 7, moreover, the elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. We have to have a good reputation with those outside the church. We also need to have our speech be gracious. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, as it were, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What word is that right there, boys and girls? Always. always. Tell me, is your speech always gracious? Mine's not either. And that's sad because that means I can't be the Moses that is needed for this generation. If we're going to speak truth to cultural power, this must be our hallmark. Gracious speech always. Also, we must remember not to sin in our anger, especially within the fellowship of Christians. I'd like us to read together uh, from the New Living Bible's translation of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 26 and 27. The, the context here is about relationships within the redeemed community. And uh, let's all read it together just very slowly, line by line. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold for the devil. Speaking of the devil, it really helps remember the true fight. As Ephesians chapter 6 discloses, there is a spiritual battle that is part of every conflict, and that spiritual fight is the real battle. And when the skirmish goes against us and we're wounded, we must pray for those who persecute us just as Jesus commanded us to. You know, right now, that's what so many of our brethren are doing today in, in North Korea and in Venezuela and in India. They're praying for those who persecute them. It, it, it's what our church brethren did. That family that I told you about, when their home was defaced, their first step was to stop and pray for the perpetrators. In a word, we are to overcome evil with what, everybody? With good. Second Timothy chapter 2, I'd like you to read with me. I know you've read a lot today. Just one last verse, if you would. You read the underlying text. Second Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I, I also pray for my brothers and sisters that we will speak truth with boldness and with graciousness. And frankly, Lord, we are not capable of that. But you are. You're the God who can conquer even my idols and break them down and let me be the voice you need me to be, the voice you need every one of us to be in a culture that is desperately in need. Father, what we're, what we're asking you to do is to help us not just speak, but to live to, to live our lives in such a way that we are engaged with your awesome work. Even, even though what we mostly see is your restraint, you give us these incredible glimpses of how you're working. And I pray that you will motivate us to engage with and be a full participant in that work. Speaking of which, these, these folks are here to take the offering. Lord, I pray for myself and my brethren. I praise you. I thank you that we have a chance to give this offering. It's, you said it, where my money is, there my heart is also. If I'm going to really engage in your work, th this, is, this is the critical aspect. 
And I thank you for the chance to give, to take a portion that is sacrificial and beautiful and wonderful in what you've provided and to give it to you. And I pray you'll bless me and bless my brethren in our giving and use it for your work, please. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen.